5 o'clock. It is 68 degrees for tonight. Mostly cloudy. It's going to be muggy. Showers and storms. A low 70. From the WTMJ Breaking News Center, I'm Melissa Barclay. Part of a 12-story beachfront condo has collapsed in Surfside, Florida, killing at least three people and trapping an unknown number of residents in the rubble and twisted metal. CBS correspondent Peter King says rescuers face a lot of obstacles as they try to pull more survivors from the building. One of the biggest problems this afternoon is the weather. It has been raining off and on here all day long. That makes it very, very tough for search and rescue teams to go do their work. It's not just about the rain. It's about the lightning. Surfside's mayor expects the death toll to rise, saying the building manager told him the tower was quite full at the time of the collapse. Authorities say nearly 100 people are still unaccounted for. President Joe Biden has announced that we have a deal, a bipartisan agreement on a $953 billion infrastructure plan. That agreement reached in a meeting today at the White House means a breakthrough after difficult negotiations. The president invited members of the bipartisan group to discuss the pared-down plan. The senators have struggled over how to pay for the new spending. Time now for WTMJ Pella, WI.com. Time saver traffic with Debbie Lazaga. Roads are wet. How are things looking out there? A bit slow, and we've got a couple of incidents out there. 94 eastbound at Highway G in Waukesha County is the left lane blocked with an accident there. From the zoo into downtown, then, it's going to be about 11 minutes, an extra four. We also have 894 southbound. Disabled vehicle at National Avenue is the right lane blocked. Right now, from the zoo to the hail interchange, we're at about a 14-minute ride. That is an extra nine. Heavy through the zipper merge. Southbound 41, Highway Q to the zoo, 33 minutes, an 18-minute back up the northbound sides at 19 which is an extra four and also very heavy on 43 southbound brown deer road to downtown we are looking at about a 28 minute ride that's an extra 16 heading over the high rise bridge downtown to layton avenue watch for about a 12 minute ride northbound 43 also backing up 11 from downtown to good hope road I'm debbie lazaga wtmj pellenwi.com time saver traffic WTMJ five-day forecast tonight. Mostly cloudy, muggy, chance for showers and storms, a low 70. Tomorrow's going to be much like today, mostly cloudy. It's going to be muggy, scattered showers and storms throughout the day, a high 82. Thinking about that weekend, Saturday, mostly cloudy, muggy, rain likely, a high 80. For Sunday, partly cloudy, 78. Monday, partly cloudy, chance for thunderstorms and a high 82. Right now in Hales Corners, it is 69. Grafton, 67. Milwaukee, we're at 68 degrees. I'm Melissa Barclay, Siding Unlimited, WTMJ News Time, 503. This is One Milwaukee, a roundtable with News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth on race relations in our community. Want to be a part of the conversation? Give us a call on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. And now, here are your hosts, John McCure and Sherwin Hughes. Welcome back to One Milwaukee. I'm Sherwin Hughes and here with John McCure. One thing we know about Milwaukee is we are often the most segregated or number two or top three most segregated communities in America. It's a very dubious distinction that we cannot get away from. And even when there's opportunities to integrate, they don't often work. And so I I was curious as to how this segregation came to pass, because there's some suburbs that surround the city of Milwaukee that are still, even though Milwaukee and the area is getting more diverse, some suburbs are not. 
This was actually created by design. And so this information comes from an organization that is no longer in existence, the Metropolitan Integration Research Center. And they actually published information as to how all of this comes to pass. Now, be very, very clear. What I'm about to share with you would be in critical race theory teaching. This would be the kind of information that we would learn. And I quote, no persons other than the white race shall own or occupy any building on said tract. But this covenant shall not prevent occupancy of persons of a race other than the white race who are domestic servants or the owner or occupant of said buildings. Crestview Acres, creating the suburb of Greendale, recorded July 29th, 1958. In the 1900s, throughout the United States, real estate operators, local real estate boards, financial institutions and title companies joined to keep black families out of residential areas through the use of these racially restrictive covenants. These agreements, usually drawn up before residential land was subdivided, required all subsequent owners not to sell, lease, or otherwise convey their property to certain groups for a specified period of time, often 20 to 25 years. You got to keep this in mind, guys. This was made unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948, but the suburban areas in Milwaukee County created these covenants 10 years after it was declared unconstitutional. That is what created these covenants, with South Milwaukee actually being the worst one. So they created their suburb, their covenant, in 1939 with an expiration date of 2024. Now, the Housing and Urban Development Act in 1968, I believe, made all of these illegal. But they had to have an additional federal law because the U.S. Supreme Court decision in 1948 was not enough because we went above and beyond and violated the U.S. Constitution to create and maintain segregation in Milwaukee County. And we still see it today. So I think we should teach this. I think we should have the discussion about it. Let me ask you this. At what point do we, I want to choose my words carefully here, at what point do we stop dwelling on it and realize that it is part of our history and it is important that we know and that we learn from it and that we teach it and that we talk about it, but at what point do we stop continuing to dwell on it? when we all realize that it's important for everyone to say what you just said, to know that it happened and then start to deal with the repercussions of it. So an example would be a family could have moved to Glendale, Greenfield, uh, Shorewood 60 years ago. That property could not be sold to an African-American family. So that family that owned that house had equity that purchased the house at one price, paid it off, probably gave that house to their kids. So maybe their kids could live in a house mortgage-free, or use the equity when they sold that to pay off debt, send their kids to college, uh, invest in their retirement. They actually had money that they got from the properties they were only they were able to buy in the suburbs and then use that equity to give them an economic advantage. Could you guys imagine where your families would be if for two, if not three generations, you were prohibited from owning a home and having the equity that comes with it? Uh, for a lot of people, like that's their retirement, the equity in their homes. And so when you take several generations of being able to have home ownership and equity away from people, you're going to get what you see right now, but on steroids. So Sherwin, when I hear and read that we're the most segregated city in America, and we've all read those stories, I've done that on my show, as a white person, that makes me sad and embarrassed and uh, a little bit ashamed. As a black person, when you read those stories and you hear that and know that it's your family that's been impacted more directly than mine, how does that make you feel? You know, I have the ability to 
see people as individuals and understand that different people grew up in different places, different times, different eras, and they're a product of, you know, the circumstances in which they grew up. Good news is I've got friends and loved ones of every race, religion you could ever imagine. And I'm, I will never say that all people of this race are bad ever because I know individuals that are contrary to that particular point. The problem with segregation is we don't have enough opportunity to see and to meet and to interact on a daily basis with people, see people make mistakes that are black, see white people make mistakes and Latinos and Hispanics make mistakes and say, oh, that was an individual act that person did, not the entire race, not the entire culture. So when you keep people separate, which we have done a very good job of in the city of Milwaukee, Milwaukee County, eventually that's going to breed resentment. When people begin to grow apart because their cultures cannot grow together as a community, as a region, we're going to resent one another. And I think we see a lot of that here. So here's what I don't understand. Why are we more segregated than Chicago or than Detroit or than Cleveland or than Gary, Indiana? Why are we literally the most segregated? I heard what you said about the suburbs and about housing tracks and bylaws, and that's obviously very real. Why here is it literally the worst place in America? We use other like psychological tricks here that people don't even pay attention to. So if I'm on 60th Street, which essentially runs the entire length of Milwaukee County, mm-hmm. but once I continue outside of Milwaukee County, it's still 60th Street, but now it's called Bear Road. They changed the name of the road. If I'm on Clark Street in the city of Milwaukee, street sign is green. If I'm on Clark Street, say past 65th or 66th Street going up, the street sign is blue. That means I'm in Wauwatosa. They literally change the color of the street sign to let you know you're in a different community. If I take Center Street, which basically starts at Kern Park. And if I take Center Street all the way west, eventually I'm going to get toward Wauwatosa. But you cannot take Center Street in Milwaukee all the way through to Wauwatosa because that would bring you to Mayfair Mall. There's a Menominee River Parkway there. So even the street stops. We change street sign colors. We have roads that automatically become a dead end at the, you know, in the Milwaukee side, but then the suburban side, right, that's where the street continues. Like we still have those geographic barriers to prevent people from having free passage from one neighborhood to the next. And while it doesn't seem like much, it's still here to this day because you can literally say, oh, on the other side of the tracks is a whole nother community. Yeah, but sure, when I live in Menominee Falls, and if I go from Menominee Falls to Brookfield, two very white communities, the street signs change. I suppose that's the and, and no one would say that has anything to do with race. But that also it's, could be the identity of those. with their different identity. Fair enough. But in Milwaukee, because we're starting with segregation and racial, racial segregation, because if I hear about a crime committed and I hear uh, North uh, Center Street, West Center Street, people are automatically going to assume and associate that with North Side crime and also make some racial assumptions as well. If I hear something happen on Bear Road, I'm like, hmm, where is this peculiar community? Well, that's 60th Street. It's it just further quaint. north. It sounds cozy. Eggs, and it's Bear, like B-A-E-R, like the German spelling of Bear. <laughs> so it's like little, like, you know, the subconscious cues that we have to let folks know you're not in the same 60th Street than you are when you're in the city of Milwaukee. I want to believe we're doing better. Are we doing better or are we not doing better when it comes to segregation and how we stand as a community? Oh, 100%. I mean, if you look at, so I'm Generation X and we're a whole mix of like really weird stuff. Like we're still overwhelmingly conservative and have a lot of our parents and the greatest generation influences in Mm -hmm. us. But millennials and Gen Z, dramatically more diverse. And I think it was, I don't know, 2012 or 13, where the child, the first child that was born that year represented the majority of children in this country that are under five or or minorities. So as time goes on, America is just getting more diverse. And so even if we don't want to work together and integrate, chances are 
where you go to school, where you work, who you're dealing with when you're out and about in the community is going to be a person of color. And younger generations get that better than older ones do. All right. We're going to continue the conversation. I want to dive into politics a little bit. Um, Are you sure? You want I, to- I, I think so. I'm trying to be brave. That's why we've waited this long. I, I am uh, stunned. I've been, in, I've been here 25 years in this city that we have not had a black mayor. And I, I, I don't understand it. I know there's a lot of different dynamic there. I want to have you kind of walk me through as somebody who's been here longer what that's all about and where we are at when it comes to race and politics. That when One Milwaukee continues on WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. Police reform has been top of mind for those rallying for social justice. After the death of George Floyd by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in May of 2020. Although everyone saw Floyd's arrest and last breath recorded by a bystander, police body cam footage of the incident wasn't released until several months later. The debate on police body cameras rages on. Milwaukee County Sheriff Ernell Lucas. I believe in body cameras. Um, but I'm not one to suggest or propose what is good for another community. It's the reason why there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies around the country. Communities know what they want and expect of their law enforcement. He says the sheriff's department went into full implementation of body cameras back in 2019. I think it works very well for us, and I'm a strong proponent of it. It's going to be the Miranda of our generation, and we know when Miranda was decided, many thought that that was going to be the end of law enforcement. Miranda didn't turn out to be so bad after all. I'm feeling the same thing about body cameras. We're having our little issues right now in its infancy, but I think over time we'll see that they've been a help uh, to law enforcement. Melissa Barclay, WTMJ News. You're listening to One Milwaukee on News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. I'm John Merck here along with my friend Sherwin Hughes. All right, let's get into the politics of this a little bit. Here we go. I know. I've been waiting for I've been scratching my head over this for a long time. So, Marvin Pratt. Uh, served out the remainder of a mayoral term, but then could not get elected. There's never been a black mayor in Milwaukee. We've had a black president. Who would have thought we'd have a black president before we'd have a black mayor in the city of Milwaukee, given the makeup of our city? What what is going on with this? Not only we get two terms of a black president, we got a black county executive where the majority of the voters of the county are. We have a black member of Congress in Gwen Moore. Yep. But with mayor, is different. Now, remember, we are living in a very segregated city. And what we found when we did the heat map analysis of Marvin Pratt's race, because that was in the bag for Marvin, that mayoral primary, it was Tom Barrett, Marvin Pratt, and I believe Sheriff David Clark was in that primary okay. as well. Marvin Pratt had like 25 or 30 percent more votes than Tom Barrett and David Clark combined. So going into the primary, it was Tom Barrett and it was Marvin Pratt. Everybody just assumed that Marvin Pratt was going to win. But when we a- an a- analyzed, rather, the heat map, there were some majority white voting wards where Marvin Pratt got zero votes. There were some majority black voting wards where Tom Barrett got zero votes. And because white folks in this town voted a higher percentage, and actually back then, we weren't yet a majority minority city back in 2004, and white people just did not trust an African-American man leading this city. And Tom Barrett ran a series of really damaging commercials. And what it did is it put seeds of doubt and cautious and conservative city of Milwaukee white voters. And it was about Marvin Pratt had like an unpaid We Energies bill. Who cares? Tom Baird made a TV commercial of it and simply said, if Marvin Pratt can't pay his energy bills, how can you trust him with Milwaukee's billion dollar budget? 
that just plays into the fact that a lot of white folks in this town have never been under executive leadership of an African-American ever before. And when you have something as innocuous as not paying a wee energy bill, it's like his wife had a couple of unpaid parking tickets. They use that to thoroughly discredit Marvin Pratt's mayoral candidacy. And that was it. Tom Baird won. Okay, that was one race, though. Right. I mean, Tom Barrett obviously since then has had the power of the incumbency, and that is very real. It is. But there have been some very popular black politicians that have tried to become mayor and haven't really gotten even much of a sniff. I mean, the latest is Lena Taylor, but there have been others. Why no success there, especially now with the level of the black population? So we can even go back to 2016 where you had Alderman Joe Davis yeah. who ran – for mayor. The thing about the city of Milwaukee is we don't like aldermen to run for mayor and win because they never have. Going back to Mayor Meyer, Henry Meyer, he was a state senator. After him, John Norquist, he was a state senator. So anytime you have, and Tom Barrett, of course, was a, a member of Congress and also a state senator. So we don't like alder persons. We get a lot of alder persons that run. The thing with Lena, Lena's a polarizing figure. If you know Lena Taylor, you have to love her. If you know her heart and how far she'll go for her constituents, because what Lena does does not make the news. The bad stuff she does makes the news. When she has a meltdown in a bank, that is what a lot of people know about her. And here's the other thing. And I've noticed this. You need money, especially if you're going after a behemoth incumbent like Tom Baird that can raise a million bucks at the snap of a finger. People don't give African-American candidates money. The but black sure community those, doesn't do much, and other folks don't do right. much as far as contributions go. But those things Lena Taylor says and does, and I've known her a long time also. Mm-hmm. I've had her on the show, and she's one of the most pleasant people I know. But she does and says things sometimes that are self-destructive or not in her best interest. We can't just ignore those things like the ugly incident you referenced in the bank. You know what I think it is? And please don't think that Tom Barrett doesn't say ugly things as well. They For just sure. get kept out of the media. When Lena says those kinds of things, and we know her— like personally, and I also know her professionally, full disclosure, I work for her doing media and communications in her state Senate office. She's being authentic. Yeah, she says things that are politically incorrect and she probably uses language that a quote unquote real politician shouldn't use. To me, that makes her more endearing and it makes her more real. And she will represent people with that same authenticity where Tom Barrett is the quintessential nice guy. But if you really know him, uh, Tom Barrett uses four letter words. So he's not as nice as you may think. But the difference is, Tom Barrett doesn't walk into a bank lobby and use that kind of language. I mean, you advise her. You need to help her out a little bit. That's that's rough. She got really bad customer service, and she wanted to know some details about a check. And if if she couldn't cash the check, then she had to evict a tenant. And so when she yeah. got more and more frustrated, because, like, look, you guys, I need to know if there's actually money in this account or I got to kick this person out. And she got a little heated, and then it blew up, and then I suppose the rest is history. But if you have people in this city— that only know her from that. They don't know the work she does. They don't know the legislation and how she has promoted and protected women throughout the state of Wisconsin and all sorts of people in every corner of the state with her legislative body of work. They don't know any of that stuff. And I think if they did, they may consider her differently. But also, she's a woman. We've never had a woman mayor either. And she does a lot of bipartisan work. Uh, Joe Clayfish is one of the most conservative members of the Assembly when he was in the Assembly. And they work together on measures. I mean... She does do a lot of work. That also hurts her with her more left-leaning and progressive liberal colleagues. Because the thing about being an African-American elected official, you have to legislate on behalf of the community that needs to get things done. Sometimes that means you got to work with Republicans because our African-Americans send people to the legislature to work and deliver actual policy back to the community. 
where if you have to work with a Republican, your Democratic colleagues are not going to support you in any endeavor. And Lena had that that monkey on her back as well. Uh, can I ask you a question about Alfonso Morales? You're connected in communities that I'm not. Why was there the drumbeat in some sectors to get rid of Chief Morales? Where do I start with that? So people didn't like his uh, political affiliation. Uh, he was a Trumper. I mean, he went to Trump rallies when he yeah, went he was on his, conservative, no doubt. He went on his vacations and went to, you know, Trump events. But also there was some internal stuff as well. He did not discipline bad acting cops like he should have. He kept giving them like additional chances. And we saw what policing can do with the Derek Chauvin. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that. So there's that and just the way he sided with a type of policing that I think Milwaukee, especially black Milwaukee, is just sick of. But it was a combination of things. And also there was a beef with him and the mayor because the mayor, who usually doesn't step against his chiefs, the mayor's like, yeah, he, he should be fired. And that was like that's the, the that death blow right there. Yeah. Uh, does the next Milwaukee police chief need to be black? No, they need to be a good cop. They need to be connected to community and see how working with community, because when people feel like they can trust the police, we're the biggest advocates for safe communities. But if you can't trust the police and here's something I see in my neighborhood, there'll be an incident and we're encouraged to call the police then the police will come. And I'm a witness and I saw everything that happened. They're going to run my record for warrants. And if somebody has a warrant for their arrest and they witness a murder, they may not call the police because they don't want to go to jail because they have a warrant out for their arrest. So the level of trust that exists between the community and the police is something that is, I'm going to call it a work in progress. The next chief needs to know that because we're in a world that is post George Floyd and things have to be different. Would Jeffrey Norman be a good chief? Ah, no, I have some bias there, John. (laughs) I've known him for a long time. Jeff Norman (laughs) ran for judge twice. Oh, I didn't know that. He ran for um, municipal judge against Phil Chavez, lost, then turned around a couple months later and then ran for circuit court judge against uh, a Rebecca Dallet, who is now on the Supreme Court. Yep. So what that told me a long time ago, Jeff didn't want to be a cop anymore. He wants to be a judge. Yep. And so maybe he's done an about face. That was, you know, 15 years ago. But I don't know if the commitment is there like we need it. And plus, he's very much at the end of his career. And he has to be a new kind of cop and a new kind of chief. And, you know, sometimes old dogs, you know how that goes. We got to get this fire and police commission figured out. That is a disaster. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing because it's a citizen board that right creates the policy for firefighters and cops to follow. And it's just the malfeasance, the corruption, the back dealing. It's it's a shame. It's embarrassing. And it makes us look like Milwaukee doesn't have our act together because when Robin Voss sees stuff like that, he's like, I'm not helping you guys with anything. You can't even get a citizen board to act, you know, in a reasonable way. All right. You uh, brought up Derek Chauvin. He is due to be sentenced tomorrow. Derek Chauvin, who killed George Floyd. Uh, Let's dive into that up next. We will discuss Derek Chauvin's sentencing, maybe some expectations, what's likely to happen. We're actually going to be joined by a legal analyst from ABC News, and then we will have the discussion. That's up next when One Milwaukee Race Relations continues on News Radio WTMJ and 1017 The Truth. Milwaukee's Bronzeville neighborhood is bordered by North Avenue on the north, State Street on the south, 3rd Street on the east, and 12th Street on the west. 
Many African Americans moved to this area during the Great Northern Migration in the early 20th century. Walnut Street was historically the economic hub of the neighborhood with hotels, restaurants, markets, barbershops, clubs, and more, and was filled with many black professionals. After Congress passed the Housing Act of 1949, the city of Milwaukee targeted parts of Bronzeville for urban renewal, which caused major displacement and ultimately led to the demise of this bustling neighborhood. Urban renewal is oftentimes very specifically related to highway construction that interrupts black communities, especially uh, in terms of uh, home ownership, black businesses and other black institutions. Dr. Robert Smith is the historian at the American Black Holocaust Museum. So there's, there's that very real and very visible government policy that fundamentally disrupts black communities at the very moment we're witnessing what we assume to be successes from the modern civil rights movement. Within the last few years, Bronzeville has started to restore what once was with new black-owned businesses and events. For 1017 The Truth, I'm Carrie Noni. Welcome back to One Milwaukee on News Radio TMJ and 1017 The Truth. I'm Sherwin Hughes with John Mercure. All right. Uh, let's do this. Let's. Uh, part of the reason we did this today, Sherwin, was because of all the dates we could have picked. The Derek Chauvin sentencing is tomorrow and the death of George Floyd. And I thought it might be interesting to get some perspective on what is likely to happen, what could happen. Dive into this a little bit. We are joined by ABC legal analyst Royal Oaks, who is with us. Good afternoon, Royal. Hey, good afternoon. Yeah, big day uh, for Derek Chauvin and uh, the whole nation, really. Uh, after the conviction of a few months ago, uh, the judge said tomorrow was the sentencing date, and uh, uh, the defense would uh, really like just probation and no prison time at all. Very few people are betting on that. The prosecution says uh, about 30 years would be fair. Uh, the absolute max he could get under Minnesota, excuse me, uh, under Minnesota law is 40 years. Um, but most people are thinking that's, that's uh, not uh, going to be in the cards uh, in spite of the egregious facts, uh, just because of sentencing guidelines and, and various sort of inside baseball rules that the judge has to take into account. So he could get those 40 years because of aggravating circumstances that have been introduced by prosecutors. Walk us through why that's not likely to happen and make the argument that it should be 20 or 30 years versus a slap on the wrist. What what the sides are saying as far as the arguments. Yeah, and the aggravating factors, actually, the judge uh, talked about this uh, several weeks ago. He pointed out there was evidence that Chauvin abused his position of trust uh, by pinning Floyd to the ground as Floyd was begging for his life. This method was not trained by the Minnesota Police Department, and he committed especially cruel and abusive acts by not medically aiding Floyd when he became unresponsive in the presence of children. So, you know, that's about as bad as it gets. It was murder in the second degree, as found by, by the jury. Now, why wouldn't it be the 40-year max? Well, they have sentencing guidelines, and they do take into account the fact that if you do not have a criminal history, uh, then it is extremely unlikely uh, that you're going to get anything more than, uh, for example, 10 to 15 years. That's what the guidelines would suggest. Uh, and so a lot of people are betting, well, in the middle of that is 12 and a half years. On the other hand, uh, the, the evidence is so egregious, it wouldn't be a shock if it went up above that 10 to 15 range, because the judge does have discretion. But the higher the judge goes, 
the easier it is for the defense to make a credible argument on appeal. So I think most people are expecting uh, that because this is his first defense, he's probably looking in that range of 12 and a half to maybe up to 20 if the judge really wants to go hard on the aggravating circumstances. Hey, Royal, this is Sherwin Hughes. I got to ask you, because I don't know if anything divided and polarized America like the video that we saw of the murder of George Floyd. And to the surprise of a lot of people, Derek Chauvin was actually found guilty of a jury of his peers. Is this just the conviction and indictment and sentencing of a single man who did a really bad act? Or is this a larger indictment on policing as a whole? Right. So do we come away with this saying like, oh, now law enforcement is going to straighten up and fly right because of this sentencing? Or is it just, well, one cop got caught doing something awful and he's going to jail for it? Yeah, great question. You know, it's almost impossible to look at a, a high-profile case like this in isolation, whether you're a juror or somebody on the outside looking in. You know, the, the desire, presumably, is to make sure you just do justice. In one case, it would be nice to send a message to the whole nation of the whole world. But the main thing is to make sure that you're being fair as to this particular case. But, I mean, let's face it, everybody from, from day one, from the moment this verdict was announced, everybody's been talking about what it means in terms of the larger picture. I mean, it comes in the middle uh, of the, the Black Lives Movement. Uh, it, it, it comes in the middle of, of the huge national debate over policing, police reform, defunding the police. So you just can't separate it out. You just cross your fingers and hope that people are getting a fair deal, whoever they are, uh, whether you know, it's a, a drug dealer or, or, or a bad cop or whatever. Uh, one interesting thing is that whatever he gets tomorrow, he's only going to serve two-thirds of it if he keeps his nose clean in prison because that's the way Minnesota law works. So, for example, if he got 30 years, he'd only, uh, he'd only serve 20 years, uh, and that's just a, a twist of the Minnesota law. ABC's Royal Oaks. Thank you so much, Royal. You bet. I'd never understood those laws. What kind of law is that that you get sentenced to 30 and you're automatically doing 20? I mean, we could have a whole discussion on that, but that just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Prison overcrowding. I guess. If you're good, we'll let you go. What, what concerns me, and I think this got lost in all the debate and rhetoric and yelling and screaming, mm-hmm. George Floyd's daughter is going to live in a world where the man who murdered her father in front of God and everybody else, they're going to walk the earth at the same time. And I don't think that we're really thinking about her, Gianna is her name, that yeah. Derek Chauvin is not going to die in prison. You know, odds are he's going to be out and still live some life. And the little girl who lost her father is going to be walking the earth at the same time as him. And that, like, that pains me. Because what do we tell her? Like, how is she ever going to trust the police? I want to ask you a question. Um, so now statues are being elected, erected for George Floyd. Oh, There's boy. a statue in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. There's a statue in Newark. Um. What happened to George Floyd was tragic. He was murdered. That should have never happened. A lot of people say he's not Martin Luther King Jr. He's not the same stature because what happened to him was tragic. He was in the wrong place. He did things that led to him having several encounters with police. Is it the right move to erect a statue for George Floyd? And why... Does the statue signify more than just George Floyd? Why why the statue for George Floyd? I can see a bunch of different sides to that question. And so I'm not going to engage in who is going to put it up and why. Whatever that yeah. community wants, if they're paying for it and they want a statue of him, so be it. This is America. I think one of the good things is it will people will wonder who that man was and they will inquire about him and all the circumstances, how America was ripped in half because of his murder. 
But at the same time, the only thing he had in common with Dr. King is they both were they both were murdered. Right. So to memorialize him as he was a martyr. Now, look, he was murdered by the police. And we know that that's a really, really horrible thing. But to give him a statue and compare him to Dr. King, I think that's a little bit tough for me. But then at the same time, America, we, uh, you know, immortalize slave owners, slave owners. Right. And they have statues and. But we're taking them, those statues down now, at least. Well, there's still quite a few that exist. In some parts come, of the country, there's still, sure. There's still some. So I just, I don't know. I'm, we also had the, the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, and people, they, like, celebrated it. It was a really weird kind of moment. Let's keep in mind, he was murdered, and that was nothing to celebrate nor commemorate. So whatever his contribution is to the civil rights movement and to social justice, it started with his murder. And that's a very, very sobering thought, and I'm not sure if we want to celebrate that or memorialize that. In any particular way. It, it really was a murder. That's what it was. Well, yeah, his family wasn't celebrating it, to your point earlier, about his daughter. I mean, it was a terrible day, a day that maybe we cross our fingers in hope, law enforcement learned from, or we become better in some facet as a nation. But to celebrate it, that that seems tone deaf. That doesn't feel right. We did get, and I'm being diplomatic when I say this, a lot of traction. There were people that were protesting on behalf of black lives that I didn't even think liked black people. So we had organizers here in Milwaukee that would lead protests. But then Ozaki County and Sheboygan and no African-Americans, no black people were organizing, putting on those protests. And so if we got that more people waking up, paying attention, saying, wait a minute, something is amiss when a billion people on planet Earth can witness this man's murder. And we weren't even sure if Derek Chauvin was even going to get arrested. So we did get some progress. I just hate that our progress comes at the expense of the murder of an African-American man who's a year older than I am. Is there a number in your head that seems acceptable when you think about what he's facing tomorrow after what he did? Where does your mind land? That's tough. I know that there's like a pre-sentencing investigation and they weigh in all of these factors. I think when it comes down to it, any other human being that commits that kind of egregious act. Like what would we be okay with someone who's convicted of second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. If the state of Minnesota, and I think a lot of us want to apply our Wisconsin thinking to Minnesota statues, they do things totally different than we do here. Somewhere close to the maximum, knowing that he's going to be protected in jail. He's going to have his time for good behavior. He's not going to do all of the sentence. But I want to send an example because we always use the criminal justice system as an example. If you do bad things, here's what's going to happen to you. So the longer he gets, maybe the more positive effect we can have on other law enforcement officers saying, you know what? This uh, this is something that we shouldn't do. But I'm also concerned about the other officers that were there holding George Floyd down. To what extent do we allow officers to just follow orders if those orders are deadly to someone who should just be detained and arrested. So there's a lot that needs to come out of this, but I think we need at least 30 years of Derek Chauvin behind bars for us to you know, think about it and really parse it out. You know, there's just so much more to this than the sentence. I mean, the sentence is what we'll all be talking about tomorrow. The sentence will be important. It will happen. But at the same time, I want to make sure we don't lose that we're talking about making officers' records more transparent, talking about qualified immunity, real police reform, that those things aren't substituted for a long prison sentence. And I'm not suggesting they will be, but if he gets 30 years in prison and then we're having the same conversations 30 years from now about transparency and community policing and the things that really do impact communities, we haven't done anything except sent one guy to prison for 30 years. 
Yeah, I wish that we could work better politically because there used to be a period of time where a Democrat-run city had this thing called local control. Democrats run the city. They're on the Common Council. They represent the city and state government. They will then make the best decision for the city of Milwaukee. If we want to implement police reform here in this town, we should be able to do that Do that without it being some larger, ultra-partisan discussion. And I think that we need to look at individual communities, because some communities have implemented their own reforms, not much smaller communities, but they've actually worked. And I think that if we can get back to making those decisions for ourselves, but we are way too reliant on Madison policymakers, where the Republicans are in the majority in the Senate and the Assembly, making decisions on Milwaukee policing and funding therein. So if we can make it more local, I think we'd have a better chance of getting real reform. He's Sherwin Hughes, 101.7 The Truth. I'm John Merck here from WTMJ. Our roundtable discussion, One Milwaukee Race Relations, continues in a moment. You're listening to One Milwaukee, a roundtable on race relations in our community. Here are your hosts, Sherwin Hughes and John McCure. All right. We uh, solicited some phone calls. We asked people if they had a comment or a question that they could uh, send it to us because we'd be doing this roundtable discussion. I wanted to play this for you. This is from Jeff. He was talking about implicit bias and the way that he as a white person sometimes finds himself acting and he's not comfortable with that. This is Jeff. I want you to listen to this and then we'll comment on it. Thanks for doing this, everyone. I never really consider myself to be a racist, but I do think that I have been living in some denial. Of Jeff is talking very fast. Slow down, Jeff. Jeff's in a hurry. All right, let's do this. We can just read it, Yeah, right? that's what we're going to do. Okay. I never really consider myself to be a racist, but I do think that I've been living in some denial of what black people deal with and the realities that they face. This has made me wonder what I may be doing to suggest that I might be afraid of a black person or think that they, through my body language or some other sign, were going to rob me or something. I think what he's saying is, I don't want to come across as somebody who looks a weird way at someone in a hoodie. I don't want to come across as sending the wrong message when I encounter a black person. But because of his bias, he's worried that that's how it comes across. So he asks, what behaviors should people look out for, such as myself, when it comes to body language? when they're in the presence of a black person to suggest that they're afraid. I, I think what he's saying, Sherwin, and I'm just guessing here, is you could tell from the beginning he doesn't want to come across this way, but I think implicit bias leads him sometimes to feel uncomfortable, and he doesn't want to. This is an issue for people. Obviously. <laughs> for Jeff especially. <laughs> he talks too fast, and he's got this little issue going on here. Uh behavior, implicit bias, how people act around other people. You're a black man. Do you sometimes see you're you're a, you're a big guy with a big voice. Do you sometimes feel that you intimidate people or white people look at you a certain way? Oh, certainly. And so to Jeff's point, like I've um waiting for an elevator, a Caucasian woman standing next to me, door opens, it's just two of us. I get in the elevator. She, oh, no, no, go ahead. I'll take I'll take the next car. So there's that. Um, I'm walking down the street, white person coming toward me. They'll cross the street because they don't want to be on the same side of the the sidewalk. That really happens? It's, oh, God, yeah. Um, about to cross the street in an intersection, you hear people, the power locks, they'll click their lock, like I'm going to jump in their vehicles. What I would say is context actually matters, and I would wonder where 
Jeff is, where he's interacting with African-Americans? Are you at Summerfest or are you walking, walking down a dark alley buying drugs? So if you have these kinds of fears, I suppose, you got to keep this in mind. I got to always tell people this. If you're white, you're much more likely to be robbed by a white person. You're around them more. You interact with them more. They're much more likely to be someone that is going to commit an offense against you. But if you really have a a fear and you want to deal with the fear of, oh, boy, there's an African-American coming. What should I do? You know, how do I you know, protect myself? Say hello. When you engage somebody, smile at them. Look them in their eyes. And I don't know if they're going to rob you or not because I don't know the context of where you are and how you're interacting with them, et cetera. But just saying hello to somebody. You know what you find more often than not? The person, the African-American that's walking towards you that looks so big, mean, and scary, you ask them how they're doing, they'll smile and want to have a conversation with you. Give that a try. That's just what I would suggest. Because you can't judge a book by its cover. We know that. But try engaging somebody positively and automatically, you know, don't just go automatically to fear. Try saying hello. It's a very human thing to do to smile at somebody and ask them how they're doing. And that's all you have to do sometimes. You know, I got to tell you, being here in this building at WTMJ... We have all white people on the air, and 1017 The Truth is now part of our family, and uh, we're blessed, and we're better off because of it. And having 1017 The Truth come into the building and having daily interaction with you and other staff members and parts of the team there, it's been incredible. It's been, it's been curious. It's been fun. It's been interesting. It's been something that I think a lot of people, just by the nature of their job or where they live or work, are not exposed to every day. And I know I'm a better person for being exposed to it after all the years of not having been part of it. And it's not scary. Well, well good. I'm <laughs> come, glad it's not we're scary. All, we're, all, we're all the same thing. Indeed we are. So here's what's uh, you know an interesting fact about that. So when we got here, because our first broadcast day was January 4th, 2021, I think a lot of you guys were still broadcasting from home. So back in our office, yep. like the salespeople and the other people we shared the office with, weren't here. In fact, they didn't come back until probably May. So, you know, you have all these African-Americans working for 101, 7 The Truth, our content director, our producers, our on-air hosts, and it's just African-Americans. And all of a sudden, our white colleagues just show up one day and it's like, wait, do you guys work here? Who? Wait a minute. I've never seen you before because there's a lot of people that actually work in the building. But once we get to know each other and we say hello, everybody's very nice and very cordial. And uh, yeah, I think that as time goes on, we might even do social activities together because we're all in the same you know, business and want the same things for, for sure. our community. So, yeah, I think it's been great. Are you more optimistic or pessimistic when you think about the future of race in Milwaukee? Totally optimistic. Younger generations are better than us. They are. They've had the Internet as a part of their lives basically since birth. They have been connected to people. They have a deeper understanding of issues. All of the course of human history, all of the documents are available for them to study and to research. Sometimes they may take it a little bit too far. But I think they look through a lens of racial harmony that it takes older generations many, many years to try and decipher. And so I'm certainly much more optimistic. I'm definitely more optimistic. I have twin daughters who are 28, and I learn from them all the time about things like empathy, understanding, being in this together. And with them and their generation, to your point, I'm learning from them all the time about being more accepting, being more open, and not just saying it, but actually doing it. You know, LBGTQ, race relations, all of that stuff, because they're my daughter's generation. They don't judge like my generation does. I mean, come on, they're judgy sometimes. 
usually about what somebody's shoes look like, but they're not judgy That's as right. much as my generation. They're just more open and receptive to having dialogue and conversation. Yeah, and that's I think that is the outgrowth or maybe the unintended or intended consequences of all of the racial disharmony that we've had. The future generations say, you know what, we can be a lot better than this because to them, Dr. King was such a long time ago. Like that's not even yeah. the world that they live in. And I think that they know that they can be and will be better. And so I think the work that we have done that oftentimes goes unnoticed, you know, a lot of thankless work is rubbing off on future generations that that they're actually going to work together and make a conscious effort to be more diverse and more inclusive in their friendship circles, professional circles, et cetera. So if Dr. King were to drop down onto this earth today and see what it looks like almost 60 years after a lot of his most important work, what do you think he would feel as he looked down on where we are? Let's stick with Milwaukee. Uh, I think he may say, depending upon when he came, he may think that he is still very much needed. I don't know how he would feel about how we have even politicized his image because people want to say, oh, you know, Dr. King was a was a Republican. I don't know if he would have necessarily agreed with that. But I think to some extent we may have lost our way because it seemed like the country was moving in a really positive direction. We got a lot of civil rights legislation signed where he was looking over LBJ's shoulders. Those bills were getting signed. We haven't really seen a lot of that. And I also wonder what he would say about Barack Obama being elected president, because that was not on the top 100 things that African-Americans were wishing for at the time. We didn't want nor need a black president. We wanted to be treated fairly with whoever was in elected office. So he may be disappointed, but he also say, stop taking my name in vain. And just it's not just me. You don't just celebrate me and my birthday and always quote me. There were other people that were involved in the struggle. So we've talked about this for two hours now. It's just the beginning of a conversation that we'll continue to have. If people could take away one thing about race relations in Milwaukee from your perspective, what would that one thing be that you'd want people to take away and think about? Kindness goes a long way, and maybe that sounds really cliche, but if you don't have any friends of a different race or culture, religion, get to know somebody. Say hello to them, engage them in conversation. You know, in the city of Milwaukee, we have a lot of great spaces where we all can come together, whether it's celebrating the Bucks or going to a Brewers game, the beautiful parks that we have. There is no harm in just saying hello to somebody that you otherwise wouldn't talk to. And just just start there. It's a real personal human kind of connection that for some reason we think we cannot have with folks that look different. Maybe we should just try that and see where it goes. Has the success of the Bucks helped race relations, do you think? Um, it's brought awareness because the Bucks were the first team, the only team to like boycott a game. Yeah, yeah. That got a lot of attention. Giannis and some of his uh, teammates were out there protesting and marching with people. And I think that that brought a tremendous amount of awareness. Like those kinds of things don't necessarily change minds, but it does reveal people's true colors, especially folks. I'll never watch the Bucks again. They should just be shutting up and, and dribbling. So it's good that we can point those people out because I'll know that. Maybe I just can't work with that person like I thought I could have. But it also brings a level of awareness. And bottom line, race relations is also PR. We want more people to talk about it, to discuss it. We want it to be everywhere. We want more people to engage in the diversity of the conversations. And I think the Bucks may have helped that. I think so, too. I, I think, you know, you may disagree with some of what they said. Some people may say, first off, I, I hate when people say shut up and dribble. That's ignorant. That's not the world we live in. You don't tell your neighbor, well, maybe you do, but most people don't tell their neighbor <laughs> next door, you know, shut up and be an accountant. 
you know, just because you're an athlete or just because you're on the radio or just because you do something that raises your profile doesn't mean you should be stripped of your voice. So are they paid to play basketball? Yeah, they are. But under that logic, no one should ever say anything. They shouldn't be able to say less because of their profession. No, I agree. And so here's the thing with African-Americans and the unique situation that we are in if we get some fame and some success, because we've been communicating our struggle through our art, through our music, through our dancing, right? We've communicated a million and one different ways, but America just saw that as entertainment. So if we have other platforms, because athletes have had a history in, in being in the civil rights struggle as well, whether it be the 1968 Olympics or Muhammad Ali, we have to use whatever platforms we are afforded athlete, actor, whatever it is, to also talk about race relations because we've tried much more subtle ways, but America needs to get hit over the head because sometimes it just doesn't realize what's going on right in front of it. How do you feel about the Bucks? Are you nervous after game one or we got this? Ah, I didn't like that. I think that we're going to make the adjustments. And <laughs> Coach Bud better make some adjustments. Yeah, or writing might be on the wall for him, right? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have a better team, but Trey Young's pretty tough. We better figure this out. You go down 0-2, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure. I'm still confident. I'm hoping they can make the necessary adjustments. Like, this is the best shot that we have. And our momentum was stopped in in 2019, and hopefully we can pick up some of that zest we had back then. Because that'll be really good for the city. It really will be. Yeah, it will be. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, One Milwaukee, the discussion on race relations. Sherwin Hughes, 101.7 The Truth. You can hear uh, Sherman on from 10 to 1 every day on 101.7 The Truth. I'm John Merck here, Wisconsin's Afternoon News, on from 3 to 6. Thank you for being with us. The discussion will continue. News is up next at the top of the hour.